Leviticus chapter 10, beginning with verse 8, the Lord comes to Aaron. And in coming to Aaron, he adds two new responsibilities to the priesthood, to the job description. As priests, they were to first distinguish between what was holy and unholy, between what was clean and unclean. And no doubt this is an addition to their normal responsibilities of caring for the tabernacle, and offerings and sacrifices. In addition to distinguishing between what was clean and unclean, holy and unholy, they were also commanded in this passage to teach the children of Israel all of the statutes. They were to distinguish and then teach or communicate all the things that the Lord had spoken to them by the hand of Moses. With these two added duties in mind, it makes total sense why God would pivot from chapter 10 into a new section of Leviticus where he now articulates to these priests, and by extension the people, what was actually holy and unholy, what was clean and unclean, concerning really a wide array of topics. As we noted last Sunday, chapter 11, God establishes dietary guidelines for the people, what things were permissible to eat and the things that weren't. Chapter 12, as we'll see this morning, God addresses the way a woman was to be treated following childbirth. In chapters 13 and 14, we'll examine a process by which the priests were to diagnose leprosy, other skin diseases, how they were then to pronounce someone clean. Chapter 15, God will go on the record concerning the handling of bodily fluids. We'll have fun when we get there. Now, while many skip through these five chapters, often referred to as the holiness code. The, the very fact that God dedicates an astounding 204 verses to communicate these things, covering five chapters, some of which are the longest chapters in all of the Bible, it tells us that the subject matter that God is articulating, that He's communicating, was important. He spends a lot of time on it, which means it demands our careful consideration. There are things in this for us, things that are profound. I noted last Sunday that there are really two big ideas that undergird these particular chapters. First, there's an undeniable component to these mandates that was revolutionary. Not only do God's commands to Israel contrast the contemporary approach of that day and age, but they transcended man's collective understanding of the physical world at that point in time. The simple truth is all of these laws recorded in Leviticus 11 through 15 were not instituted by God to be a killjoy, to restrict the enjoyment of life. No, 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 no. Instead, they were instituted by God to protect their ability to live. As it pertains to the advanced science and medical wisdom we find behind all of these rules, the reality is the underlying concepts the Hebrew people could not have possibly understood in that time frame, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. Like these people had zero awareness, no ability to understand microbes or the biology behind harmful bacteria. They didn't know what caused human illnesses or how infectious diseases spread throughout a community. You know, in the end... I find this to be an amazing component to these things. These mandates, they would only be beneficial to the Hebrew people if they believed and trusted in them, believed and trusted in the reliability of God's Word, and then just obeyed in an act of faith even while they couldn't fully understand all of them. What an interesting picture of so much of God's word, where we get challenged from time to time. I don't, God, God, I just don't understand this, but this is what you say. And I'm going to trust that. And I'm going to obey that because I know that your ways are higher than mine. Your thoughts transcend mine. As we work through these chapters, it's worth considering that while some of the prohibitions are no longer relevant in our modern societal context, Many of the ideas do remain as applicable today as the original moment God gave them to Moses. So first, the concept that undergirds these chapters is that what's being articulated is revolutionary. Very practical. 
Lots of benefits. The other big idea that undergirds them is that these five chapters still fall within the first section of Leviticus, which, if you remember, is all about man's relationship with God. The second half of the book is about man's relationship with man in light of God's grace. But this section is all about us and God. It's a very interesting concept. Because God wanted the Hebrew people to be holy, we saw this in Leviticus 11, as I am holy. Meaning that God wanted them to be separate from the world for the purposes of being His light unto the world. God now defines this new way of being. Be holy. Not do holiness, but to be something. He's making them into a new people. Distinct. He then distinguishes. Hey, there's a new way to live, and let me tell you how you do it. He distinguishes what things are clean. Hey, these things are, are, are pure. They're permissible. But you know, there's these other things that are unclean. They're impure and prohibited. You know, anybody that creates anything realizes that there's a dynamic of distinguishing. Well, what color do I want? I, I want this color, but I don't want that color. I want to use this materials, but not that materials. I need this in a home, but not that in a home. We make, in any creative process, and again, God is creating the Hebrew people, this group of Egyptian, uh, liberated Egyptians, they're slaves, they were Hebrews, here they are, they're in the wilderness, God's making them into something new, He's making them into a new people, a people that would reflect His ideals, and to do that, there's this distinguishing, a creative process. Again, remember that none of these laws were really about the people doing anything. It wasn't about doing something. The holiness code, this was all about them being something distinct. Not doing something particular, but being something distinct. God wanted His people to live so differently from the world around them that they'd never forget they were different from the world around them. These laws were not designed to bestow to them an identity. No, no. They already had one. They were already the people of God. Instead, these mandates were to remind them always of what their identity was. They were the people of God. Last Sunday, we looked extensively at the dietary guidelines recorded in Leviticus 11, which in many ways perfectly illustrates this idea. In fact, if you look at a, the pattern, if you look for a pattern, of the animals that God prohibited the Jews from eating versus the ones that he restricted them from eating. If you look for some pattern, whether it's the, the land animals, the, the fish, the birds, the creeping things, if you're looking for a pattern, a pattern in what God restricts and a pattern in what God prohibits, you'll discover something interesting. That what God prohibits his people from eating, they were either falling into one of two categories. They were either predators or they were scavengers. Andy and I had an extensive conversation about this after the service. You know, when you consider this, in light of an Eastern philosophical concept that you were what you ate, it's why they were very particular. It would then make interesting sense why God would, to His people He's creating, make these two distinct classifications. It's almost as though, in these various distinctions, God is wanting His people to understand something very important. I have called you out of Egypt... Not for you to be predators, nor for you to be scavengers. And because you are what you eat, I'm going to prohibit you from eating predators or scavengers so you'll always know who you are and who you're not. You know, you know it's really interesting. They finally get to the land of promise. They cross the Jordan. They get to the first city, the fortified city of Jericho. And what was God's mandate? We're not going to go about this conventionally. Instead, I want you to take your trumpet, send the musicians, walk around the walls. We're going to do this like seven days. Do it once. We'll get to the seventh day. We'll do it seven times. The walls are going to come tumbling down. Sounds like a plan. But then what does God say? He says, take nothing of the spoils. Why? You're not predators. Nor are you scavengers. Instead, as you enter the land of Canaan, I want you to always trust in me. And me alone for your provisions. Leviticus 12. We're going to read through the whole chapter here. It's only eight verses. But we're told that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean 
seven days. And in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin, this is the baby boy, shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification for another 33 days. So for a male child, there's this total of 40 days that a woman was unclean and therefore separated. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, she shall be unclean two weeks. So that's 14 days as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. So with a baby boy, there's 40 days in totality. But now with a female, female child, this process for a woman is going to last a total of 80 days. 14 plus 66. Verse 6, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or for a daughter, so after the 40 or 80 days, she shall bring to the priest a lamb, of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, meaning she's, she's too poor to afford one, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. You know, on the surface, and I kind of went into this week's study with this assumption, the passage appears to be fairly straightforward, kind of cut and dry, to the point. And yet, what I discovered is just below a cursory reading, you will discover in this chapter some profound, incredible concepts being established by God about the way that He wanted women and children to be treated in this new society that He's ordering. Like, like not only would these things He's laying out here possess a practical benefit for both the woman and the child, but in the process, in the end, all of these things, as we'll see, were designed to illustrate much deeper spiritual principles that everyone within the society at large needed to remember and understand. Now before we get to the larger ideas at play, let's just take a second and look back at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Because we run across one of the most significant concepts in the entire Old Testament. In the midst of these directives pertaining to the uncleanness of a woman who's just given birth to a baby boy, we read, look at it, on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now back in Genesis 17, God established this act of circumcision, specifically to be the sign in their flesh of an everlasting covenant that God had made with Abraham and all of the descendants that would follow on the day that this covenant was made or reiterated. Abraham and all of the living males in his household were circumcised. Terrible day. Moving forward, this ritual would occur on the eighth day following the birth of, of a child. This was all established in Genesis 17. Now, within the Genesis record, circumcision, because it was the sign of this everlasting covenant God was making with Abraham and his descendants, circumcision became this essential identifier of God's promises, that you were God's people. Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, were circumcised. Isaac's twin sons, Esau and Jacob, were also circumcised. Later on, Jacob's 12 sons would be circumcised as well. Beyond Genesis... What's interesting is the next mention of circumcision is found in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, which implies for us that the practice of circumcision continued all throughout their Egyptian captivity. So for the 400 years there in Egypt, circumcision was happening on the eighth day every baby boy in the Hebrew camp was born. <laughs> in fact, circumcision in Exodus 4 comes up in a really bizarre way. Let, let me read it for you. We're told... It came to pass on the way to Egypt. So Moses has received a calling from God. 
there, Exodus 3, at the burning bush. He's on the way to Egypt. He arrives at the encampment of Israel. Now notice, the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah, and this is Moses' Gentile wife at the time, she took a sharp stone. So the Lord grabs hold of Moses, is going to kill him. Zipporah moves into action. She takes a sharp stone and she cut the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet. The implications is that Zipporah didn't want her son to be circumcised. Moses went along with this, but now he's getting to Egypt representing God, and God's going to kill him because his son's not circumcised. So Moses gets held back, and Zipporah's like, snap! Circumcised, throws it at Moses, and then she says, you are the husband of blood to me. You think you have marital issues. So the Lord let Moses go, we're told. And so she says again, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now, it's crazy. The whole story's crazy. The idea, though, is that not only was circumcision taking place in the 400 years of Egyptian captivity, but the Hebrew people understood the significance of it to the point Moses hadn't done it to his son, and God would kill him as a consequence. Exodus 12 is the next mention of circumcision. In fact, it's presented in that passage as a requirement for any Gentile that wanted to celebrate the Feast of Passover. If you were a Gentile, you wanted to celebrate Passover, that was fine. With one well, criteria, you had to be circumcised. Yeah, come on, join the party. But beforehand, well, we're going to have to address something. And, and again, it was kind of akin to, in a New Testament context, the importance of being a Christian before partaking of communion. You should have, be circumcised of heart before you partake of the elements. And the, the, the seriousness of it is all weighted. Now, what's fascinating to me, aside from this one mention in Exodus 12, requiring a Gentile be circumcised to celebrate Passover, this one verse in Leviticus 12, Leviticus 12.3, is the only mention of circumcision and the entirety of the law. That one line that we looked at. Now, th <laughs> this is such an interesting idea that I'm going to set aside next Sunday uh, for a deeper examination. Yes, that was a tease. Let's transition to what the chapter tells us about the way that God wanted women and their children to be viewed and treated, because this is I mean, radical stuff. Please note the words, again, that we find here, clean and unclean. Don't put too much weight in them. Like There's simply descriptive terms in the Hebrew. Descriptive terms that are used by God just to designate something or someone as being pure and permissible or impure and prohibited. And God does this within a very specific context. Like in this case, the distinguishing between clean and unclean is occurring in regards to a woman post-childbirth. Like in no way should we view this distinction that she shall be unclean in the days of her customary impurity to be God declaring a woman who's just given birth to a child to in some way be sinful. That's an entire misreading of the passage with no validity as if there was something morally corrupting in the process of conceiving a child through sex, carrying that child to term, birthing a child into the world. This is a glorious process. Like, in truth, conceiving and bearing a child is done ultimately as an act of obedience to the commands of God with His blessing. You know, even before the fall of man in Genesis 1, verse 28, God tells us that he not only blessed the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, but then he commanded them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill and subdue the earth. God initially created a process in his perfect wisdom whereby human life would be conceived and brought into the world through a woman following an intimate experience with her husband. 
Beyond that, it's not even an accident. It's part of the design that this sexual act between a married couple designed to foster oneness between two separate and distinct people, male and female, ends up doing what? An act of unity and oneness literally produces a human life, signifying the human life that exists in this distinct couple. It's a beautiful picture. You know, if we're being honest this morning, I hope we are, you and your spouse have likely been guilty of saying a truly ignorant thing (laughs) upon the birth of a child, one of yours. I'm guilty of this. That little life comes out, and you're holding it there with your bride, and you say, honey, look what we made. (laughs) Look what we made. Yeah. Yeah, the fella had two or so minutes of fun planting a seed. The woman then had the joy of carrying around for nine months as it wrecks her body. But did you create anything? No, no, no. You see, life, life is something that we don't create. Life is created by God. Let me read you a description of what happens during the first week of human life. And as I'm reading this, you think about how involved in the process you were. Biologically, fertilization is the beginning of human development. When a man's sperm, within several hours of ovulation, combines with a woman's egg inside a woman's uterine tube. The sperm makes contact with the cells surrounding the egg and mixes 23 male chromosomes with 23 female chromosomes. What results is a single-celled embryo, the first cell of the human body. In fact, these 46 unique chromosomes tightly coil into what becomes known as DNA, which contains all of the instructions for how the single-cell embryo will develop into a full human adult. On the sixth day after fertilization, a six-day process known as implantation begins, whereby the embryo embeds into the inner wall of a mother's uterus. By the end of the first week, the embryo has traveled extensively, multiplied from a one single cell to now being several hundred, dramatically changed its shape and complexity, and has begun receiving nourishment directly from the cells lining the mother's uterus. This is all incredibly complex. Not only does that happen, like, fellow, you had nothing to do with it. Not only does it happen without the woman even knowing she's pregnant, but there's one one non-Christian scientist that I read He literally describes this process of these six days, between day six and and day 12, as literally, his words, non-Christian scientists, his words, not mine, trying to describe what's actually happening here. He says, cells spontaneously come into existence from literally nothing. Something from nothing sounds a lot like creation, doesn't it? If you have any doubts about the sanctity of human life following conception, God's role in that process, consider what God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 5. He says, before I I formed you in the womb. Notice that I formed you in the womb. God directly involved. I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. You know, if you've ever been in the delivery room, I've had this personal experience now three times. And on all three occasions, my singular goal was not to require any medical attention myself. I am quite a bit squeamish when it comes to blood and things like that. If you've ever been there, if you've ever seen it happen, whether you were there for a sister or you were there for a wife, for a daughter, like, you know that there is no question that something intrinsically divine and holy happens. Like when you stand and you see life and you hold that life, the, I mean, the, the entire process of a woman birthing into the world a living human that God created in her womb, it's hard to put it into words. Yes, the, the process is painful. I mean, what the guy goes through, I mean, should be, we should be very sympathetic towards. I mean, the whole thing is stressful. 
You know, in, in her labor, bringing life into this world, there is this weird brush with death required from the living. It's strange. Life, new life, but this brush with death, the process of it all, it's taxing. And yet what always results, it leaves you standing there. And again, I've, I've done this three times, speechless, filled with wonder. God, you did this. This is amazing. I bring this up just to emphasize a key point. This designation in chapter 12 that a woman in this post-childbirth condition was unclean had absolutely nothing to do with her moral standing before God. God was involved in the process. God sanctified the process. God blessed the process. God made it all happen. He sanctified it. He ordained it. He blessed it. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, apart from our wedding day, my wife has never been prettier than the three times she's given me a child. Instead, please understand this classification designed to separate a woman and her uncleanness from normal activities for a period of time, 40 days or 80 days. Why did God do this? It was to be a practical blessing for a woman that had just gone through something crazy. Like this phrase that's presented to us in the King James Version, that the woman shall be unclean in the days of her custom impurity. You notice that it was repeated twice. The way that the New King James translates this is misleading. The Old King James more accurately translates these three Hebrew words found here, yom, nidadava, as according to the days of the separation for her infirmity, or literally, a separation for her unwellness. There's not a great English translation into it. The idea is that since childbirth takes such a physical toll on a woman, God commanded that woman be separated, set aside, remember, unclean, separated, distinct from her normal activities. Separated from normal duties. Separated. Why? So she could recover. Like consider that in being designated unclean for 40 or 80 days, depending on the sex of the child, several important things resulted. First, sexual intercourse with her husband was strictly prohibited. She's unclean. Off limits. Can't touch her. Which affords her now a sufficient amount of time to recover physically. Again, if you've ever had a child, you understand no sex. For like four to six weeks. Why? Because she's injured. She needs space. She needs time. She needs to recover physically. Secondly, verse 4, it's clear that the woman during this period following childbirth was forbidden, notice, from, quote, touching any hallowed thing. Because she was unclean, this designation given by God, the woman was prohibited from, from doing what? Anything. Her household responsibilities, she couldn't handle food. She was unclean. It would make the food unclean. She couldn't clean up the house. Why? Because she would defile the house. It would be unclean. You see, she was given a, a, like a vacation. Why? To rest. You know, not only did her husband have to abstain from sex, but God's clear that he now has to step up and take care of the house. Thirdly, again, the wisdom of God, right? This unclean condition also prohibits her from entering any type of public spaces to the point she can't even go to the tabernacle for a period of time. And what's genius about this is that God, by saying you need to stay home and do nothing, he's immunizing her. She's, she's quarantined, her and the baby, so that she can't go to public space, she can't go to the tabernacle, she can't go shopping, can't go to the grocery shop. She's got to stay home, which protects her and the baby from infection and disease. Finally, you can imagine that this particular separation stemming from this designation ended up giving this new mom ample time to focus solely on that little one. Developing a bond. Nursing. Like in many ways, Leviticus 12 presents for us the very first form at all 
of maternity leave. The wisdom of God. You see, the entire idea behind declaring the woman to be unclean following childbirth was it to stigmatize her as some way being defiled or sinful. No, instead, God is simply wanting this woman to have enough time to recover physically and emotionally. Aside from this, we can see the genius behind God wanting the vulnerable newborn to be in a situation where the mom can protect the baby, nourish it, give an ample time to develop an important bond with mommy. Now, the logical question is why did God designate twice as much time for recovery if the woman, if the child was a female, 80 days, as opposed to if the child was a boy, 40 days? Twice as much time if you have a little girl than a little boy. Medically speaking, we understand that a, a baby's gender plays zero role in a woman's experience. I can say that with firsthand, under, uh, firsthand knowledge. No difference whatsoever in the birth of a little girl or a boy. It's terrible regardless. Physiologically, the, the time needed to, to recover, whether you had a boy or a girl, it's also the same. Somewhere between four to six weeks. Now, it's true that, that we really can't say with 100% certainty why this particular designation. You study it, you read through it, you'll find all kinds of reasons. The best theory that I've come across boils down to the psychological connection with the mother. You know, it's true that the bonds that the children develop naturally with their parents are often uniquely predicated upon gender distinctions. We understand this. Little girls bond more naturally with dads. Maybe God knew in giving twice as much time for a little girl to spend with mom, God, God recognized that the little girl and mom needed just more time to develop a connection. Dad, he can wait. That'll happen naturally. But little girl and mom, they just needed a little bit more. On the flip side of that, since boys connect more quickly with their mothers, maybe God wanted to limit their exposure to mom so they didn't become overly attached, as if God was raising up a nation of mama's boys. You need 40 days and then cut it. Get that kid out. I don't know. Regardless, the fundamental concept articulated in this chapter, it is radical. In ancient cultures, women, <laughs> they were not seen this way. They were not treated this way. Instead, in ancient societies, they were property. Women were the property of their husbands. The property of fathers sold to husbands. Women had few, if any, human rights. Their primary purpose in the ancient cultures was pleasure, birthing children, and taking care of the home. And yet, in this ordering of a new society, what we find God doing in Leviticus, God wanted the way that He viewed women to be reflected in the way men viewed women. Women in this culture, from chapter 12, they were to be treated with honor. They were to be treated with respect, especially after they had given birth to a child. It's as though, if I can use a bit of creative license, that God's saying to the men that controlled and, and kind of made up that society, fellas, your wife just did something incredible. I don't know if you're aware. She brought into this world a life I created in her womb. It was not fun for her. It took a toll. And fellas, for a period of time, you need to give her some space. Respect her. Don't dare try to have sex with her until she's healed, until she's good. She's going to get a vacation, which means you're going to have to step up around the house, cover her responsibilities, and let her recover. Let her be. It doesn't take much imagination to see how revolutionary of an idea that was in that day and age. God was creating a distinction between the Hebrew men and the rest of the men that made up the world. And how was the distinction created? And the way God told them to treat their wives. Women were to be protected and cherished. And you know what's, what's I think, awesome about it is that 
this principle established in the law, well, it gets carried over to the New Testament as well. The ideal remains the same. In fact, it kind of gets, it, it gets upped one. In Ephesians 5, verse 24, we're told, as husbands, to love your wives. You're like, I got that. And well, then he tells you how to love your wives. Just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her. Which means we all have work to do. The way women are treated reflects a lot about God. Fellas, in a Christian context, the way we treat our wives says a lot to the world about Jesus. So what does it say? It's also worth pointing out that the child, whether it's a male or a female, it wasn't considered to be unclean. Nothing about the child being unclean at all. Nor does the way that this is being presented should we see that a child was in some ways a downer. You know, in Psalms 127, verses 3 through 5, King Solomon describes children as being a heritage from the Lord. He then adds that the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. Now, in this divine ideal of how God wanted society structured, bringing children into the world was of such importance that God issues a command. Protecting the woman, protecting newborns, giving them plenty of time to rest and bond before re-entering the normal flow of life. And you know, as a church community, this is a perfect example whereby the wisdom articulated in this ancient text is applicable to us. It's relevant. You know, broadly speaking, we need to place, I believe as a society and mainly as a church, a higher esteem on having children. Like as Solomon wrote, the children are a heritage from the Lord. Or literally, in the ancient language, they're an inheritance that God gives to us. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's not a curse. Yes, raising children is not easy. But I will say from experience that I've learned more about God in raising children than ever before. You know, specifically, as husbands, we need to do a better job helping our wives. I think I can say that. Like if your wife has just given birth or is about to, the application's kind of clear. But for the rest of us, never forget, and this was a healthy reminder for me, the scriptures never present a married couple with only one party parenting. It never happens. You're a team. As a community, seeking to honor the things that God honors, as a church, let me say, and I think we do a really good job of this, but we should continue. We need to celebrate new moms. I mean, just lavish them with praise. And we should do what we can to help them recover, whether it's providing meals or whatnot. But in the end, when it comes to new moms, we need to give them space, grace, and time as they naturally transition back into a normal routine with a newborn. Now, to this point, there's another phenomenal idea sitting just below the surface pertaining to children, specifically, we should take note of. L look at verse 6. In verse 6, we read how the Lord required the woman to bring to the priest a burnt and sin offering, specifically when the days of her purification were fulfilled, again, 40 or 80 days, whether for a son or a daughter. You know, for all kinds of reasons, in the ancient cultures, the birth of a boy was held in much higher esteem than the birth of a girl. In fact, in pagan religious customs during this time period, the birth of a boy was celebrated at the temple, whatever pagan temple that was, as being a gift of the gods. No such fanfare was ever made for the birth of a female. Today, by the way, we see the same type of perspective in the two-child policy of the People's Republic of China. Celebration of the birth of a boy, but not so much with a girl. You know, how interesting that at this tent, the tabernacle, where the people of Israel were commanded to come and meet with God, the identical offering was to be made whether the child was a boy or whether it was a girl. The same offering. Which tells us something. Not only is this imagery distincting 
like making a distinct difference between Israel and all the other nations. But it, it made it clear that in the eyes of God, all human life was divine, sacred, and valued, whether it was a male or a female. Now, before we wrap up the chapter, there's another aspect to all of these things that we need to discuss or look at because it rounds out what's really happening. So we've really, for the most part, looked at the practical benefits of this, which are many. But there's something deeper happening. Think back, for starters, to the fall of man. In the fall, the consequences that resulted for the woman were pretty straightforward, weren't they? Her curse, because of sin, Genesis 3, verse 16, this is what it says would follow. To the woman the Lord said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. It would appear that before sin entered the human condition, that childbirth, as it was originally designed, was a much different experience for the woman than it is today or as a result of sin. You know, according to one, according to not just one, but many studies that have been done by the World Health Organization, historically, the death rate for women giving birth has plummeted in the last hundred years. Now, today, it's crazy to think, 830 women will die in childbirth today which means that one woman will die in childbirth every two minutes today. Largely, this is relegated to the undeveloped world, and many of these deaths are preventable. But between 1990 and 2017, the maternal mortality rate decreased 44% globally. It was crazy to consider, but until the 20th century, childbirth was the leading cause of death for a woman. Some historians who specifically study the evolution of women's health estimate that in ancient times, a third of all women would ultimately die giving birth to a child. It might not be the first, but at some point, because of how many children you would have, the probabilities of dying increased exponentially. And, and that idea, let's be real, that dynamic, doesn't jive with our present context, like our reality. And yet, for just a minute, go with me here. Imagine being a woman in ancient Israel, figuring out that you were pregnant. Yes, there was undoubtedly a real joy. You're pregnant. This is wonderful. This is amazing. But there's no question the exuberance would be mitigated by this ominous reality that bringing life into the world would likely require a brush with death from you. You know, for the woman, the curse of sin was no more clear than in birthing a child. The consequences here were, were, were unavoidable. It was something that she would be forced to experience. She couldn't get around. She couldn't get out of Pain was tangible. Risk of death, haunting. Surviving the labor, if you were a woman in that culture, it was not a guarantee. As a matter of fact, you knew many that didn't survive. You know, with that in mind, think about it. This idea of God, like putting it into the law, means it's serious. The idea of God now granting that woman who's just given birth time to rest, I think it's beautiful. Like here we have a woman who's just experienced the effects of sin in the most radical way possible. Not only has she survived, but then on the other side of it, how is she met with a God that says, now you know how serious sin is. No, no, no. It's not what you find at all. Now you know what the judgment's really like, right? Well, you kind of earned it. You deserved it. It's sin. No, 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 no. When the woman comes out of that experience because of the curse, what kind of a God is she met with? A God that steps into the divide and says, that woman is special and she needs time. The woman is met with an abundance 
of God's grace, isn't she? Grace. Like there is this tenderness and care in the way that God wanted the woman to be treated. And you know from kind of the macro, the the lesson, well, it's clear for us. The application, when we find ourselves in a situation where we must endure the consequences of our own sin, or let's just even say the, the more broad effects of the curse, I want you to take heart knowing that you will be met on the other side of that painful experience by a very gracious God who will meet you and in His tenderness will say to the community around you, give that person time to recover. Give that person time to heal. It's important to God. But you know, that's not all that's happening here. Notice again, when the days of her purification were filled, God invites the woman to come to the tabernacle, right? And offer both a burnt and a sin offering. And making the sin offering, the woman's acknowledging the reality of her own shortcomings. I mean, you can imagine that she knew all too well that the wages of sin is death and life. Wow, it's a gift. But then in also making the burnt offering before the Lord, she's placing her faith towards the ultimate sacrifice, one that God would make. What what blows me away about this is that what we find in Leviticus 12 is the very first time that a woman was instructed to come and make an offering without a male. Without a patriarch. Without a husband. Without a father. A woman is told to come. In fact, the only other time that that happens is in Leviticus 15, when a woman has to come and make an offering after she's been cleansed of her discharge. Again, chapter 15 will be fun. But what this tells us is that following childbirth, There was an important interaction that the woman needed to have with God that had nothing to do with her husband at all. You know, in Genesis 3.15, God pronounces a curse on Lucifer, Satan, the serpent. But in pronouncing that curse, He also issues a promise for all of humanity. We're told that the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Interesting, she doesn't have seed, and it's capitalized as a messianic promise. He, speaking of that seed, shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, we've already noted that every human life is the byproduct of of the man, the woman, and God working in concert. Man provides the seed, which bestows his sin nature. The woman becomes the incubator. God creates life. The woman then has to birth it. But what's rad about Genesis 3.15 is that the redemption, the ultimate redemption of mankind from sin, how would it be accomplished? It would be accomplished with just God and the woman working together. You see, the seed of fallen man would be excluded. While every pregnancy, with every pregnancy, a Hebrew woman and these processes and procedures They were reminded of two realities. First, in spite of the curse, in spite of her sin, God was still gracious enough to use her to bring life into the world. Life through her curse. But secondly, she was also reminded that in the end, God would work through that experience of childbirth to bring a Savior into the world. Everlasting life would also come through her curse. God would work through a woman's labor to bring salvation into the world. Well, all that's awesome. One more thought. I think that there's one more reason to this command that a woman, after the days of her purification were filled, while she was supposed to come, to the tabernacle, make these sacrifices, and then later the temple. I think that the reason for the command actually, in some grand scheme, has nothing to do with the woman and had everything to do with the child the woman would have to bring with her. And the reason that I say that is that, that I'm actually of the persuasion that Leviticus 12 may have existed for only one reason. 
And that is to produce a scene that we find in Luke 2. That in a sense, this mandate that a woman had to come after the days of her purification were filled with her baby in tow to make an offering was God's way of setting the stage for what would happen way later in in Luke. Let me read this for you. Following the birth of Christ and the stable outside Bethlehem, we read that when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel when he was conceived in the womb. Again, circumcision was at home, wasn't at the temple, as many falsely conclude. But we're told, continuing, that when the days of Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, was completed, so now this is 32 days after circumcision on the 8th, They brought Jesus to Jerusalem. They brought him to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb, so the firstborn, shall be called holy to the Lord. But they came, and notice, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons, which is proof that, that Joseph and Mary, they come, Mary makes an offering of pigeons, turtle doves, which means she couldn't afford the lamb, the sin, the burnt offering. So she comes to do what God commanded be done in Leviticus 12. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, because Leviticus 12 made them, (laughs) he took Jesus into his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and Mary marveled at the things which were spoken of about Jesus. You didn't know all that was in Leviticus 12, did you? Practical things about women. Practical things about how we should treat women who've given birth. We should honor them and respect them and give them time to recover. This incredible picture of God bringing life through the curse. Isn't that how we all exist? That God has worked through the curse to bring life into us. And that he continues to do that. And that ultimately, when it was all said and done, these things pointed to Jesus. Everlasting life coming through Mary. No involvement of the man, but the woman in concert with God. It's an amazing picture. Leviticus 12. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us. I ask 